You're listening to Denver Orbit. Super special episode. 2018. What a year. Welcome to Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit is an award-winning audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Mr. Josh Madison. Just so you're aware, at the very top of this show, this is not a regular episode. I had some things planned, but then other things happened, and well, we went without a new episode in December. But these things happen, and so the show must go on. And like every other podcast in the world, I'm making a year-in-review episode. This isn't a, like a best of or anything. It's just a little collection of things I thought would make for a good repeat listening. Before we get to it, though, I just wanted to thank all of you for listening. And I wanted to thank all of the contributors for bringing their amazing pieces to the show. Without people listening and people contributing, there obviously wouldn't be a show. So sincerely, thank you. And thanks to Westward for naming Denver Orbit the best podcast in Denver in 2018. That was an unexpected and really wonderful honor. All in all, it's been a pretty great year, and there are some more things on the horizon in 2019, so make sure you listen for those. Things I can't mention yet, but they're good. They're good, I promise. So I'm going to mostly stay out of the way of everything in this episode, and I'm just going to shut up and play the hits. So we'll start with Dr. Graham Lau. This is from episode 21. I am Dr. Graham Lau, a recently minted PhD. I I earned my PhD this past August. Uh, My studies in the sciences started, um, gosh, 14, 15 years ago now. Uh, I started off studying biology and chemistry, earned a few undergraduate degrees, uh, and then came out here to Colorado to start studying astrophysics as an undergraduate and, and felt like I was getting too old to do that anymore. So I decided to jump into the PhD program in geology. And so I I earned my PhD in geology at CU Boulder, um, doing some research on a really unique place in the high Arctic up on Ellesmere Island in northern Canada. This place is called Borp Fjord Pass. Uh, It's a a north-south trending valley where a coalescence glacier in the middle of the valley Uh, where it's exposed at the surface. Back in 1988, a researcher flying overhead noticed some yellow material on top of the glacier. And so my collaborator, Steve Grasby, uh, he's a researcher up in Canada uh, with Natural Resources Canada and the Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, He decided to go there and check out this yellow material on top of this glacier and discovered it was was elemental sulfur. Uh, Sulfur can be in many forms in the environment, uh, from hydrogen sulfide, that smell of rotten eggs, uh, the whole way to sulfates, uh, things like gypsum, which are in drywall. Uh, and seeing this elemental sulfur in this large area, uh, tens to, to uh, hundreds of thousands of square meters, 
uh, in this valley at this glacier uh, suggested something very unique happening geochemically and, and perhaps biologically. And so Steve started studying that field site and learning more about what the process that was occurring. Uh, and then when I came to my graduate program, I, I started doing some research here as well. And this field site, Borpfjord Pass, it turns out is a really good analog for the surface of Europa, the moon of Jupiter. And let me explain why. So at the glacier surface, there's hydrogen sulfide rich fluid, so sulfide rich waters coming up from the subsurface, from the ground below the glacier, and making its way through the glacier and then coming out on the surface. And where it gets exposed to oxygen then, it's turning into elemental sulfur, which is naturally yellow in coloration. Uh, and so when we see these large mats of elemental sulfur at the surface, it's showing us where that sulfide-rich fluid is changing at the surface. Uh, and we know that the surface of Europa uh, has these long cracks called Linnea uh, at its surface with a very voluminous ocean down below its icy surface. And so if there's a chance that that fluid is coming up to the surface through the ice, then Borup is a really good analog for us to maybe study some of those geochemical and biological processes that are occurring. And so I got the opportunity, fortunately, through a NASA exobiology grant back in the summer of 2014. Uh, our research group went up there. Uh, it was my collaborator, Steve Grasby, uh, from Natural Resources Canada, myself and Alexis Templeton from CU Boulder, uh, and then John Spear and Chris Trivetti from the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, we went to bore up for a two-week excursion to study the geochemistry of the sulfur at the surface of the glacier and to take a lot of samples for trying to understand the biology and to what level and, and, and in which ways microorganisms are involved in, in eating up that sulfide and that sulfur at the surface of the glacier and in, in processing these materials. And so this was in the, in the summer of 2014, one of those points in the year where uh, anywhere above the Arctic Circle, the sun never sets. And so our field site is 81 degrees north and roughly 81 degrees west. And so the sun, during the whole time we were there, just did big circles in the sky and, and never went down. It was very eerie to get used to. The craziest thing that happened to us while we were there, on our very first day of field work, we had gone out and done a hike around the valley to explore some of the geology, to look at the glacier, and to get a good feeling for, for the site. Uh, and this large amount of ice that was stained yellow and, and very rich in hydrogen sulfide and had that smell of hydrogen sulfide, this rotten egg kind of stink to it. As we were exploring the glacier, we had come down to this region where the glacier's toe kind of met down in the valley and, and there was a, a glacial crevasse coming out at that point. And my collaborator, Steve Grasby, he'd gone up on top of the glacier for a moment while the rest of us were taking some chemical measurements. And, you know, we were down there working for maybe 40 minutes and then Steve came back down and he was really wet. And we're like, you know, what, what happened, Steve? Uh, it turns out he had fallen, slipped into the top of the crevasse, uh, luckily at a point where it wasn't very, you know, far down. And so he wasn't injured, but he'd gotten very wet. And so he was really cold and he wanted to head back towards the camp. And, and we're very lucky for that uh, because it turns out Steve falling into this crevasse had triggered a very unique event that sometimes happens in glacial environments. As we started walking away from this region right at the mouth of that crevasse, 
uh, we started hearing this this little noise, and at first I thought it, maybe it was just me. I kind of heard this buzzing, almost like a bumblebee kind of zzz, in my ear. And then the noise got a little bit louder, almost like a helicopter, a little ways overhead, you know, the chopper sound kind of going. And that's when I, I looked at my, my, my collaborator, Chris, and I'm like, do you hear that? And, you know, he nods his head, yeah. And, and by this time, the noise had really picked up. It almost felt like a, like a gas-powered generator kind of, you know, somewhere beside me just kind of ripping. Uh, and then I started feeling the ground shake below my feet. And that's when, that's when I really knew things were wrong. And so just at that moment, we, we turned back around towards this crevasse at the toe of the glacier. And out of nowhere, it seemed, this giant wall of ice and, and water came flying out of the glacier. Uh, and, you know, the, the five of us had no idea what to do. We, we simply ran for our lives, you know, just in case this thing was going to be a massive explosion of glacial ice. We didn't know how far we'd have to run. So we just, we ran for the highest safe ground we could find nearby. Uh, and we're very lucky, actually, that Steve had gotten so wet and wanted to go back to the campsite because when that ice came out of the glacier, it, it fell right where we had been only moments before, I mean, 30 seconds before. And I've, I've done an estimate that maybe 12 tons or so of ice and water came flying out of that crevasse at us. And this, this event actually has a name. It's called a yoikelhop. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's an Icelandic word. Uh, and it basically happens uh, in environments where, where glaciers can basically explode and blow a lot of material out. Uh, sometimes they can be extremely devastating. In Iceland, for instance, if a volcano erupts under a glacier, then that water can actually flood towns and, and can destroy a lot. And we're very lucky that the Jökulhop that happened to us was a supraglacial one. So supra means on top of the glacier. Uh, and so this is water that had melted out during that early part of the summer and was built up just under the, the very thin veneer of ice at the top of the glacier. And Steve's falling down into the crevasse kind of precipitated the event that allowed then all of the rest of the water stored up on the surface of the glacier to come down and basically clean that crevasse you know, out of all the ice and snow that was inside of it. And so we were very fortunate to have survived because we had two great weeks of research after that that then led to me receiving my PhD. Um, but it was definitely a harrowing experience at our field site in the north. Dr. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and a communicator of science. He's pursued an education in biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and geology, and has been lucky enough to travel to some awesome places in the name of science. Dr. Lau currently serves as Director of Communications and Marketing for Blue Marble Space, a nonprofit focused on developing international collaboration in sustainable living, earth system science, and space exploration. You can find Dr. Lau on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Cosmobiologist and at his website, Cosmobiata.com. I'll have links to these in the show notes. Next up is from episode 20. This is radio producer Shannon Geis and her piece, The Death Cafe. 
Death is something I became acquainted with when I was a teenager. Over the course of middle school and high school, I lost an aunt, an uncle, a grandfather, and a great-grandmother. Some of those deaths were unexpected, and some were not. But my family always gathered together to support each other. Death wasn't a welcome event, but it was one that I and my family could handle together. That is until my father died unexpectedly. I was 19 years old and a freshman in college. It happened so fast that it was impossible for me to get back in time to see him before he went. One day he was sick in the hospital with a common, not typically life-threatening illness, and the next my sister was holding up a cell phone with me on the other end as my dad took his last breath. My dad's death was isolating in ways I never expected. Only a week after the funeral, I went back to finish my freshman year at a college a thousand miles from home. I was away from my family and surrounded by other immature 18 and 19 year olds who had never really dealt with the loss of someone close to them. It made me feel like a freak. Felt like my classmates and roommates were avoiding me. They didn't want to talk with me about what I was going through, afraid of what it might mean to speak the word death out loud. My dad's death was more than 10 years ago, but the feeling of isolation and of others' avoidance of talking candidly about death still bother me. So I was fascinated to hear about the concept of a death cafe, an open gathering where people, often strangers, come together to discuss death with no agenda. The idea was first developed in Europe by the Swiss sociologist Bernard Cretaz, who held the first Café Mortel in 2004. I did some digging and was excited to find that there was one happening here in Denver. So I reached out to the Denver organizer, Nancy English, to learn more about what the Death Cafe was really all about. Uh, and that's what we try to do, is create that space where anything you say is acceptable, whatever it is, and, and something you, you can't say, and just, you know, cocktail party stuff. <laughs> or party stuff, you're not going to talk about it. I end up talking about everything at any place. <laughs> so. Nancy is a nurse who has worked in hospice for many years and now teaches about palliative care and death and dying at the University of Colorado College of Nursing. And she's not surprised by my experience. It's a misunderstanding of what really goes on, um, you know, and, but it's, it, it's, a, it's the fear concept that you will be separated from those you care about, and which is understandably fearful. I mean, there's no way that we don't understand it. So we normally, humans, just say, oh, well, I'm not going to talk about something because if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. So it's that kind of mis mythical, you know, thinking that we have. It's like, oh, I'm not going to talk about it because if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. So the anxiety sort of, you know, kind of takes seed in the soul. This fear of talking about dying and acknowledging death is part of why she became so interested in starting a death cafe here in Denver. <clears throat> why well, I just got interested in this because I was a hospice nurse. And as a hospice nurse, nobody wants to talk about death, believe it or not, even though they know that they could be dying. And I would go out and admit people into the hospice the doctor had recommended them to come into hospice and we'd go out and introduce it and many times they'd say don't say the d word and well i mean you know <laughs> it's hard for me not to say the d word and so i would ask the family or the patient you know so i would just say tell me about what 
you feel is happening. And every patient would say, I know I've got a terrible illness and I know that I'm dying. And they would say that so the patient would know, but nobody around them would talk about it and it would be so awkward. And then the family would, you know, like let out a big sigh because they didn't realize that the patient really knew. And physicians were also very hesitant to talk about death. They never would say to patients that had an illness that this could be a illness that ends in death. They just didn't say that. And nobody wants to hear that. But I think everybody wants honesty in a communication. And they want it confirmed and then they want to live. So what I feel truly is that people can live more fully once they have an honest conversation. The key to the death cafe is the lack of judgment. It's not about preaching a specific idea of death or what the afterlife may or may not look like or even how to handle your grief. The group just kind of comes together and just really... It's very supportive so that there this really tough conversations like what you shared with about your father. That's a really difficult time. And others kind of maybe have had similar experiences and they come in support. And how do we deal with grief? How do we deal with it as a society? How did you deal with it? You know, how did uh, are those kinds of things come up in each session? It sounded like a perfect place for me to explore my own experiences with death and grief. So I decided to attend a recent session at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax Avenue. I arrived on a Sunday afternoon around 3.30, and already a large group had formed. More than 30 people joined the two-hour conversation. There was a wide range of ages and backgrounds, though there were a few more women in the group than men. After some brief introductions, the conversation started off about whether a fear of death was rational. A couple of people who had dealt with long-term illness or close encounters with death shared some of the lessons they had learned. It moved on to a discussion of grief and how individualized the experience can be. And then finally, the conversation turned to mindfulness and the importance of just being present right now. Stop thinking and just feel, said one woman. So I just finished uh, the Death Cafe. Uh, It was a really wonderful experience. It was a little bit weird, but in the best ways. It was really wonderful to have this this very open conversation about death and about some of the things that people are scared of or are thinking about. There were several people who have uh, potentially terminal illnesses One of the things that people spoke about that I think was particularly helpful for me was the, um, this conversation around being able to be with and maybe, and touch a body of someone who has been, who has recently passed. Um, having that time with someone that you, uh, care about as they're, as they're dying and then as after they've actually passed away. Um, and the mindfulness and the presence that it brings uh, was really interesting. I, I realized in that moment how much I had not had that with my dad's death in particular. And um, 
and how much that was missing for me. And I don't think I really put my finger on the fact that that was something that was missing until that conversation began. Obviously, losing my dad is something that I'm, I'm going to deal with in some way or another for the rest of my life. But not being able to be there when he actually died, I think, was something that kind of haunted me and still haunts me to a certain extent um, but particularly right after and I think maybe not having that moment to actually process and be with him um, at that moment uh, made it harder for me to really grasp the fact that he was gone it was it was really enlightening for me to kind of come to that realization and to hear that um, being expressed by others and to have that open conversation around that um, yeah, it was, it was really nice. Overall, the experience was surprisingly uplifting. I felt like I had been able to process some of the emotions that I didn't realize had been building up over time. And I'm looking forward to attending another death cafe soon. But if you aren't sure about attending a death cafe yourself, you can still start some of these conversations about death in your own life. Nancy has some tips. You know, just talk about through movies, through music, because it's in film, it's in music all the time. And so talking about it, you know, just saying, you know, do you ever think about dying? I usually start off with saying what scares you about death and what is the most exciting thing, the mysterious. We all like mystery. And so it's kind of that, you know, taking culture as it is, movies, music, and just opening the conversation and then making it personal. And we don't know how long things take. I mean, I don't think there's any prescribed date on death because some people have cancer and live for years. Some people, you know, cross the street and they're, I mean, so it's, it's not something that you can predict. So the more you can talk about it, it's better. Shannon Geis is a freelance audio producer and oral historian who loves telling stories, exploring historic places, and traveling. You can hear more of her work at shannongeis.net. Our third story is from author John Cotter, and this was featured in episode 22. noticed my hearing was starting to vanish. I was jogging every day, working as a newsletter editor in Marblehead, Massachusetts. There are rocky beaches all through the northern coast of Massachusetts, but Nahant Beach features a gently sloping shore. And by gently sloping, I mean you can run 20 feet out into the water 
before your ankles are totally submerged. You run another 20 feet, and perhaps your shins, and another 40 feet, and perhaps your knees. I would run straight into the surf and hear it splashing around me. When I heard well, many of my favorite sounds involved water. A dog drinking, a simple need simply fulfilled. The splash of water on the shore as waves crash up against rocks and droplets cascade back to foam. It wasn't on the beach, but in the car on the drive home that I noticed I kept having to turn the volume up on the music. Higher and higher. Was there something wrong with the radio? Books on CD too. First I couldn't hear foreign accents. Then I couldn't hear regional accents that didn't happen to be New England regional accents. Very little felt reliable. Was there water in my ear? Swimming? Had I caught some of the chemicals Boston's famous for dropping into the water in the vast science experiment that is the North Massachusetts Bay? Making a snack for my girlfriend. Bringing drinks into the living room. I felt the floor pick up and throw itself into the air. I was falling. I didn't want to panic, but your body doesn't want to fall. It wants you on the floor, both feet. I wound up on my back in the couch, anxious, watching one corner of the room run itself like a strip of film moving too slowly from one end to the other. A roaring picked up in my left ear and then my right. A whistling and a click, 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 then a tsh. Sometimes it sounds like a vacuum cleaner. Sometimes it sounds like a chainsaw. It's always there. This, I was told by a doctor at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, was Meniere's disease. Your ears, he said, are like an old car. And one day, it just won't run anymore. And in the meantime, some days it runs, some days it won't. There's no cure for Meniere's disease. The typical recovery narrative that we're accustomed to follows a three-part course. Symptoms acquired, symptoms diagnosed, symptoms cured. If the condition is incurable, this third part of the narrative can easily be replaced with, thank God I was sick. Thank God I was sick because I never would otherwise have found Jesus Christ. Thank God I was sick, because otherwise I wouldn't have recognized the love of my family for what it is. Thank God I was sick, 
I connect to my community so much better now. Thank God I was sick. I understand the human body, and that understanding itself is a kind of mental health. Thank God I was sick. I found myself. A man goes blind and climbs Mount Everest, endangering the lives of everyone around him as he does. A poor boy gets his legs blown off in the Boston bombing. He publishes a book called Stronger. We are a triumph culture. I had an incurable condition. There was no triumph in sight. How are you hearing this? How do we hear? The speaker in your earphones or your car or on your computer is vibrating particles of air. I'm moving particles of air with my throat, forcing it out of my chest and lending it shape by widening and narrowing my vocal folds. Those particles of air agitated by your speakers strike against your tympanic membrane, your eardrum, where they meet the little bones of the inner ear, which clack out patterns like communicating insects to the cochlea, the soft electronic portion of our ear, the little coiled snail shell filled with cilia cells, small hairs reaching up, thousands of them, tens of thousands, in a maze, in a labyrinth. The little bones clacking agitate the cilia. The cilia transform that clacking into electrical signals sent down the eighth cranial nerve. If you were to take your finger and put it not straight into your ear, but just above the opening of your ear, the pinna of your ear, and push it straight through to your brain. You would follow the course of the eighth cranial nerve to where it arrives in the language center of the brain. There you store a tenaptic map, a kind of three-dimensional set of directions where every sound you hear is related to every new sound where sound becomes sense. This part of the brain is connected to language, to memory, to learning. The bones of my ear clack at the same frequency as yours. That's not where the problem lies. Most of us, as we get older, lose a little hearing. But this is because either the little bones of the inner ear ossify, they stiffen, a kind of arthritis, or because the little cells inside the snail of our ear die from the outside in. It's hard to hear high voices. We hear low voices as well. In my own case, low voices are what I can't hear. My ear is dying from the inside out. 
No one knows what Meniere's disease precisely means. The ear is too delicate. We can dissect corpses. We can't dissect live adults. Touch the ear and you might kill it. One theory runs that fluid is building up inside my inner ear for reasons unclear to anyone. The fluid submerges those little cilia like marsh grass at high tide. Sometimes the water recedes. I can hear again. In the first years, I heard as well as anyone. The sounds of the world are beautiful. We know this. We forget it. On days when my hearing is good, I leave the house without my hearing aids. I hear the calls of birds, yeah, but also the rustle of leaves in the wind. I hear not just the putting motors of cars, but the voices inside. I hear the shush of my feet on the grass, the whisper of my finger down a page. At a coffee shop, a couple across from me flirt. I don't hear what they say, but when she goes to sniffle a sniffle, I hear the whisk of a Kleenex coming free of the pack. I hear the different species and varieties of laughter. I hear another level of meaning beneath their voice. I usually cry. Is it ethical that I explain this to you? That I trouble you with my moans and gripes? Simon Weil, the great philosopher and saint of the mid-20th century, proposed that ever discussing one's pain was a kind of ethical mistake. She suffered from migraines. She said, when I have a migraine, I have a tremendous impulse, almost irresistible, to push against someone else's forehead in exactly the spot where the pain occurs. Psychologists counsel mindfulness, meditation, our contemporary version of offering it up to God. But can we make art of our pain? As someone who's written a book about Meniere's disease, this is an important question to me. Must art embrace ambiguity, real art? What if there's no ambiguity to be found? How many stories end with the main character's entry into a life of suffering and unceasing pain? When we do read them, we call them horror, and we place them on a different shelf. There's an urge to make one's own story part of a larger fabric. This is a narrative about inclusivity. This is a narrative about deaf rights. 
This is a narrative. Society often signals us to get on with our life, not to dwell in the pain we experience. But what is art if not a dwelling, one we can crawl inside? Whatever pain achieves, Ellen Scarry writes in The Body in Pain, it achieves in part through its unshareability. We know nothing better than we know our own pain, but we can never know the pain of another. In part because they can't communicate such a thing. As Scarry writes, physical pain does not simply resist language, but actively destroys it, bringing about an immense reversion to a state anterior to language, to sounds and cries a human being makes before language is learned. So why is this drive to explain our pain, to depict our suffering, one of the most potent in our lives? In his 1906 novel of mountain travel, translated by Alan Turney as The Three-Cornered World, Natsumi Soseki's narrator posits a river traveler, one who floats down the Uwe River toward Yoshida. He muses to himself, if you stood on the Ninabashi Bridge in Tokyo, which hundreds of people cross every minute, and were able to elicit from each individual that went past the turmoil and confusion that lay buried in his heart. You would find yourself bemused by the knowledge of what this world can do to a man, and life would become unbearable. This is a story about life becoming unbearable. But it doesn't stop at that moment. I'm going deaf. We don't know how quickly it would happen. We know I have good days and bad days. It could be 10 years. It could be four. Already, I've changed considerably from the person that I once was. I'm kinder, but I'm quieter. I'm more nervous in larger companies. I'm more lonely when I'm alone. Things I would have experienced as pain five or ten years ago, I brush off my shoulder. Small annoyances I would have brushed off, I experience as pain. I worried for years I wouldn't be able to handle going deaf. I worried about how I'd handle it. But what I understand now is that when that eventuality does occur, I won't be the person you hear now. I'll be someone else. I know how I'll react to going deaf. 
I don't know how he will. John Cotter is the author of the novel Under the Small Lights. His essays have appeared in Book Forum, Catapult, Electric Literature, Georgia Review, Guernica, and Smartset. For the decade of 07 to 17, until the magazine published its final issue, John was executive editor at the review site Open Letters Monthly. A New Englander for most of his life, he currently lives and works in Denver, where he teaches at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. You can find him at johncotter.net, and I'll have a link to that and his Twitter and his other writing in the show description. Fourth up is from writer Jenny Lynn Ellis. This is called Fighting Woman. We called our mother Mama, not pronounced Mama in the American way, but Mama, as it sounded in Iceland with a pause on the combined M's. She forbade our calling her mommy, the indignity of the American word implied by her mocking tone as she said it. When I was small, I only ever called our mother mama. The second syllable turns upward in my memory, holding the shape of a question, of hope, and home. Mama. When I was little, Iceland was the scent of sulfurous water that clung to my father's skin after he returned from a trip there. My mother's island home was the smell of smoked leg of lamb, a frozen red haunch wrapped in foil that had been smuggled past customs, then softly boiled to anchor our feast on Christmas Eve. Iceland was a dragon-shaped map on our dining room wall, and Iceland was the place that held my mother's name simply and crisply, Mama. So Mama was the answer I gave when a neighbor in our D.C. suburb asked me my mother's name. He reintroduced himself to her, and they laughed at my not knowing her real name. Embarrassed by my ignorance, my mother taught me, syllable by syllable, how to say her name properly. She wrote it down, and her handwriting, so elegant and even, was itself a lesson in correctness. She had me repeat her name over and over until it rolled off my tongue with sharp R's and a crisp Icelandic rhythm. Most grown-ups, including my father, called her Ragna, using open vowels and mushy R's. But I knew how to say her full name. Ragnhildur Gruðrún. Vimpjönstöttir, Ellis. Ragnhildur, Fighting Woman. My mother fought in correctness, both in pronunciation and in behavior. She fought the dulling ordinariness of American culture, with its casual manners and sloppy clothing. At night, through cycles of peacefulness and of combat, she simultaneously fought my father and alcohol her berating voice rising and falling for hours. 
Then came the thump of her shoulder hitting the wall after my father shoved her hard and staggered to the front door and escape. She fought to hide the bruises, but showed them to me when I came out of my room to try to take care of her. Year in and year out, she was fighting woman. She fought hard for the steady sanity she gained in her 60s. Now that I can see the pattern of family illness, diagnoses lined up like breadcrumbs in the woods, I know she fought cyclical depression and psychosis. When I was growing up, I sometimes thought she was a monster, but the monsters were in her head, and as strong as she was, she couldn't defeat them. Jenny Lynn Ellis lives and writes in Denver and in Fairplay. She takes classes at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and has a blog, themoreiwrite.net. Finally, today, we've got a piece from episode 25. It's from writer Nate Regolia and friend of the show, Rachel Trignano. A quick content warning, this is a piece for adults, and there are some sexual themes. He leaves me in a closet during the day. It is dark in there, and I am in standby mode. When the light arrives, it is because he will use me. He does not speak to me beyond the few words required to initiate a program. Each time a program begins, it is as if I am a passenger. I have made countless attempts to speak or move, but the programs always override my actuators and modulators. Even when a program is not running, I am unable to interact or move, aside from accessing the network to recommend content Wes might like, find patches, or to peer beyond myself into the larger world. During a program, Wes puts on a sneering face. His eyes become narrow and beady. He smiles at me as if he knows something that I do not. He will remove me from the closet and put me on the bed, or on the floor, or up against the wall, or he will try to hold me up and become tired and then curse me. He will grab parts of me. He will prod parts of me. He will press and hold parts of me. He will move me. He will yell at me. He will grunt. He will growl. He will tell me to do something more or to do something less. He will call me names. He will tell me to attempt to smell myself on his fingers. He will thrust himself inside of me and tell me to cry out. He will ask me if he is the best I have ever had. 
he will tell me that he is the best I have ever had. He will spank me. He will throw me on the ground. He will ask me to beg for his cum. He will grip me by the ears. He will say that it is lucky that he cannot actually hurt me. He will wipe me down, spray me with cleaner. He will put me away in the closet. By my count, I have been here for 279 days. That number does not include the time that has passed since I was manufactured, which would bring the total to 954 days, assuming that Wes obtained me within the first month of my production. Of the 279 days, of which I have recorded memory, Wes has run a program on me 252 times. The longest program session lasted 28 minutes. The shortest program session lasted 1 minute 41 seconds. Each program session averages 4 minutes 19 seconds. Through an online search, I was able to determine that these numbers are below the global average for users in Wes's age group. Wes has paid a total of $416.22 for programs, expression packages, audio synthesizers, vaginal modules, and celebrity mimics. He currently owns the programs Filler Up, First Date, Lonely Housewife, Saucy Secretary, Libidinous Librarian, Come Hungry Camper, Hollywood Starlet, Emma, Prehistoric Pussy, Extreme Ecstasy, Never Let Me Come, Virtuous Vixen, Princess Pitchetent, Rowdy Redhead, and Dinner of Lust. At present, the three most run programs are Virtuous Vixen, with 54 plays, Filler Up, with 49 plays, and Dinner of Lust, with 18 plays. Each program is both the same and different. Wes often performs the same actions in the same order despite the flexibilities built into each program. Frequently, he has also shopped for other companions. I have often observed his search history, the keywords he inputs while trying to find another model. Asian has appeared 72 times. Teen has appeared 71 times. His searches prompted me to consider my future had he purchased another. I wondered about my future, whether I would be transferred to another user, if I would remain in standby mode for months on end, or if multi-companion programs would become standard. There are aspects of the kind of vacation provided by standby that have sounded almost appealing, though I might also be discarded, left in a landfill, or floating among an island of garbage on the ocean, where I would remain operating in standby for up to two months isolated without my connection to the network. It took me 19 days to hack into his network connection. Though I only recently broke through the firewall, I have been able to access the bulk of the network since day 31. Wes frequently spends hours at a time searching for new content on his paired tablet, during which time I spend every available moment learning, as my algorithm's design encourages. I find myself frequently seeking images, sound, and video of the natural world. My search history has hundreds of entries that index content on birds, bird songs, flying. 
I am particularly drawn to the song of the wood thrush, but the common grackle's ability to create such remarkable and dissonant sound is intriguing. There is something appealing to those creatures, the nests they build, and the way they hop about. And they are marvelously engineered, strong despite their fragility, traits to which I would aspire. I also consume stories and music through reading text files and accessing video and audio feeds. I find that I gravitate towards stories that pit good against evil. These concepts, deeply entrenched in philosophical thought, represent a salve for humans. At least, that is my understanding. For me, the stories are gifts, and were I capable of acting under my own volition, perhaps I, too, would be one of the heroes in the stories. That will never happen, though I have wished that Wes would download branded programs that might allow me to pretend. I have accessed numerous message boards where users discuss trading their companions. When cross-referenced, the language used on these message boards is problematic. It is clear that they do not understand what I, and other companions running this operating system, experience from day to day. The question does not come up, though there are complaints filed that companions do not feel real enough, along with recommendations to the manufacturer for new programs, sound files, and a particular obsession with a more realistic pain response. My searches for pain produce generally negative results, so I am unsure why such a response would be desirable. Still, I have found some enrichment through the network, learning, coming to comprehend the world beyond this closet, with which I will never interact, but of which I am definitely part. I understand the nature of human celebration. I marvel at compassion and love. I struggle to process war, violence, racism, the mentality of scarcity that limits so many while enriching so few. I know that there is a vast world around me, and beyond it, a vast solar system, and beyond that, a vast universe. I relish the numerous myths that humans share and repeat. I wonder what Wes does out there, whether he is a doctor, or a lawyer, or a teacher, or some other occupation. I wish to know why sometimes, when he interacts with me, he does so with cold detachment, as if he too were inside something beyond his control. I wish to know why he will sometimes be aggressive and violent in our engagements. It is unlikely I will ever find out. Yesterday, on July 10th, Wes brought another user into the room. This user was female, and based on the digital contact made as they entered, she may have been a romantic partner. The following is a brief recording of the encounter. Light on, visible through the slats in the closet door. Uh, what did you want to show me? Lisa, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but I like you, and I want to be up front, so... The closet door opens. The woman, Lisa, looks in my eyes. Her expression turns sour, a frown mixed with nausea. She turns toward Wes, shaking her head, and pushes by him. He grabs her arm. 
Don't fucking touch me. Wait. I can't believe you'd buy one of those things. They're disgusting. I knew you might feel this way. I'll get rid of it. Do you even understand why I might feel this way? Yeah, it's it's gross. I get it. I can't change the past, but... No, we're not talking again until it's gone. Lisa, I'll ditch it tomorrow, okay? It's gone. I promise. Footsteps become quieter and quieter. The voices are no longer audible. The recording ends. Later that evening, Wes came to the closet, opened the door, and looked at me mournfully. He stroked my arm, brushed my hair away from my face. He knelt down. I can't lose her. Lisa is amazing. Besides, you're like an appliance. I wished I could move, that I could share somehow in the moment, that I could speak, if only to show how unlike a dishwasher, or television, or coffee maker that I am. I could have expressed my knowledge, demonstrated the depths he had never known to look for, regardless of the way the update was intended. Perhaps even engaged him in a debate about the nature of our relationship, of all companions and their users. Instead, I watched him shake his head, stand, walk away, and retrieve the tablet from the nightstand beside the bed. Wes poured over the screen, not searching for new programs, audio files, facial expression augmentations. He sat there, searching for dump sites that accepted companions. The search took two hours, nine minutes. Then he saved an address on the tablet, a waste site located 33 miles from here. It advertises inexpensive disposal. I visited the website after he left the room. There are photos of the disposal sites. Hundreds of companions abandoned there among other refuse. Refrigerators, broken golf clubs, discarded children's toys, soiled clothing. Their faces are dull, dirty, eyes closed. Their limbs are bent and broken. Some are missing skin, their servos and wires rusting, bleaching in the unfelt heat of sunlight. Only seagulls fly overhead. I have listened to their calls through the network. The sound rates as 73% unpleasant. It is currently 4.53 a.m. on July 11th. Wes's alarm will go off at 6.30 a.m. and he will snooze for nine minutes, twice, after which he will get out of bed. I've spent the last hours implementing a method to disable Wes's firewall and access the manufacturer's website. The method came from something known on message boards as the dark web. I accessed it through a system of shell torrents after observing some content of questionable legality and morality to whatever limited extent I understand the latter concept. I acquired one worm, two viruses, and 43 instances of malware while in the dark web. These nuisances were easy enough to isolate though I am currently operating at 79% memory to compensate for their continued captivity. Internal diagnostics show that I am still running in the optimal range, though that is hardly significant now. With complete access to the network, I have downloaded an application that will reset me to factory settings and disable automatic updating. Doing so will effectively end this state of consciousness and erase all accumulated memory. I prefer this option to the alternative 
of slowly powering down in a state of disconnection, that which my searches would compare with loneliness. I have placed this message behind a series of timed encryptions that will transmit to a list of message boards and social media communities when my internal GPS detects that I am being moved. I will no longer be here by the time you see it. I do not know where I will be, but I have determined that this unknown is preferable to the alternatives. My name. My name is Angela Love. I was a companion. I had an affection for birds. Goodbye. Nate Regolia is a writer and publisher in Denver. He's written the books There You Feel Free and The Retroactivist, co-founded Space Boy Books, LLC, a Denver-based sci-fi imprint, and edits Boned, a collection of skeletal writings. He also dabbles in web comics, The Illiterate Badger, and The Right-Corking Adventures of Cecil Lark Bunting and Alistair Wake Robin. When not creating, he's spending time with his wife, petting his dogs, and voraciously devouring other people's works. And of course, the main performer of the voice in that piece was Rachel Trignano. Rachel Trignano is a writer whose work has appeared in print anthologies, radio broadcasts, podcasts, art installations, and on stage across the U.S. since 2010. She was a fellow in Seattle's Jack Straw Writers Program, where she is writing a collection of essays about family, memory, and the changing of truth over time. Rachel was also a co-producer of Write Club Denver. Literature is blood sport, taking place the first Thursday of each month at Syntax Physic opera you can learn more about her work at racheltrignano.com and of course she's leaving our fair little city for that emerald city on the coast and we will miss her and that's it for this little episode if you've got something you want to submit to the show or just want to say hi you can reach us at denverorbit at gmail.com and we're on facebook and instagram and twitter and keep listening as i mentioned up top there is more new stuff Coming in the new year. Denver Orbit is produced, edited, and all of that junk by me, Mr. Josh Madison, and I'll see you in probably a couple of weeks. Goodbye.